0: Hello, I'm Martin Mercer. And I'm James Mastriani. You've never heard of us. We're two Brits who grew up in North London and have had varying success in the film and television industry.
1: In our ever-advancing age, we find ourselves on... The The Wrong Side side of Hollywood. Hollywood. (laughs) In our series of podcasts, we'll share our experiences of what it's like being a British bloke living and working... Or not in the biz. We'll discuss everything from fish
0: and chips to things that wind us up. So stay with us. It's all uphill from here. This podcast may contain strong language. If you're of a sensitive nature or easily offended, we invite you to, as they say in Blighty, jog on. Morning. (laughs) Good afternoon. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's quarter after one.
1: It's the the heat, you see. The heat temperature has finally turned up in Los Angeles and it's approaching Terminator 2 Sarah Connor's immolation whilst (laughs) clinging to the chain link fence. Yes. And uh, we find ourselves in the high 80s degrees Fahrenheit,
0: edging into 90s. Yeah, this week. Yeah. It was all nice and cool-ish last week and now it's going to be hell! Oh I'm It's gonna to be
1: oh, too hot for my pits. But um <laughs> so it's after the cracking interviews with Mary and your brother Guy. Yep and Heiko. And Heiko, of course. Yeah. We can't forget our German friend. friend. Um but now Guy's on Broadway. Yes he is the director of The Shark Is Broken. That's right. So that's very exciting. You're gonna to be toodling off.
0: Moni and I will be going there and we might do a little report from the street. Yeah. Like your fourth of July.
1: Yeah, we were talking about that, weren't we? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But no spoilers. But okay, no spoilers, but we were talking about that quite excited about that and it's very cool for Guy. Yes. He saw a concert, didn't he, at the same hall where his and your father uh, yeah. there was some confusion there on Facebook. Um
0: where he used to uh, play, right? That's right. He was at Juilliard. Right. A very prestigious music school. Okay. Which I have to admit I was not that aware of, but it is true, apparently. Oh, I have no clue,
1: mate, I'm useless.
0: <laughs> Well, <laughs> welcome to my world. But yeah, he posted there and he said, "This is where my father went to music school." And I said, "Strangely enough, my father went there too."
1: <laughs> yeah. and he said, yeah. "Really?
0: When?" <laughs>
1: I know. It's like, come on, guy, come on, let's share it a bit, eh? That's right. That's
0: right. <laughs> So there was that. But, yeah, looking forward to that little trip.
1: Yeah, no, it's going to be exciting. And, again, it's play and playwrights, and I think that ties us nicely into what's sort of the elephant in the state, as it were, which is the W... Uh, what is it? Provider's <laughs> right. Guild of America. I can't say the, the word. WGA Strike. The WGA Strike. Which is ongoing. So I told you, to... my medical condition is serious, James. Not it's not funny.
0: That's not funny. Yeah, and that's about to parlay into the... Um actor strike
1: yeah because they had an extension of their contract to discuss and unfortunately that's coming to a close within a day mm. and it doesn't look like anything's resolved and so with that in mind we thought it would be a great idea to bring in a, somebody who is a wordsmith as it were nice choice of words yes and i think it's a good choice if i pat myself on the back because it really is a skill set that even though i've been working in the business <laughs> 35 years no you You know, and you have uh, for a while, not as long as me. But I've read so many
0: scripts And hundreds of them in doing a job And yet it's a sort of a mystery really The person we've got coming in is, I think is a very talented script writer He's done hours and hours of television Both animated and live action And you've never heard of him And you've never heard of him Which is why he's here Yes, because he is on the wrong side of Hollywood Exactly
1: But the thing is I think there's a public view of writing And the situation with the strike Is a very basic one I think it's like When they hear of writing they hear of what they call showrunners, which yeah. is a writer who has, a, I would say, a supervisory position and a decision-making position, yeah. uh, almost producorial. Mm-hmm. Um, and they see these guys and they get guys and girls and they get big figures, yes. big money. Yeah. I mean, money that most people can't even dream about, quite yeah. frankly. Mm. Um, even me as a crew member, I look at it, I have no friends uh, apart from James who are writers and they receive checks with lots of zeros on the end. Yeah. And you kind of look at that and you look at the residuals, which we don't get as a craft. Apparently we do and it goes to our union to pay for the health care and benefits but if that's so it must be shockingly expensive. <laughs> that's all I can say. Yeah. But the thing is, the public is used to seeing the top tier of these guys getting compensated to the nth degree. Mm. What they don't see is all the people underneath that, right. union members and non-union, who are scribing away. It's a bit like actors, again, with SAG. People are like, ah, oh, look at Brad Pitt, look at all these guys who've made it to the top of the pile. Right. But what about those guys and girls who are waitering, serving coffee... Waiting for their big break. Waiting for the big break. Or, again, we've got friends whose partners are actors and actresses mm-hmm. and some of them are hammering away and they're doing independence and they're being seen but you're still banging your head against that door and I think this whole strike business it plays into the hands of the general public who look and go, oh look at these people, they get paid, this, they're in show business, show business, what's that? It's just a frivolity, it's a bit like what was going on in London with the arts and everything, it's a frivolity, right. you know you get the Tories going, it's a frivolity Ugh. but the reality of it is it is part of humanity, it's needed, we we learn we grow we improve and you've got a big business behind it yeah. big business hides behind the opinion of the public that oh look at these people striking well they get hundreds of thousands of dollars etc etc
0: and I think that's at the core of this myself well, when we get him in you almost dropped his name and I'll have to bleep it <laughs> <laughs> did I yeah but moving swiftly on That's enough.
1: now when I was thinking about writers I wanted to look up William Goldman yes but I put in William Golding and of course William Gold. Wrote the famous book *The Lord of the Flies*. Yes, and and I was like, oh, God, stupid me, *Lord of the Flies*. But then I actually thought *Lord of the Flies* is a great summation of the business, the <laughs> fucking film business. Yeah, with the way these kids are on an island, they try and organise themselves—a complete fucking disaster. Right, leadership problems, and they kill people. But they do, and poor Piggy gets it. That's right. And then of course I found William Goldman, *Marathon Man*, all the president's men, and his wonderful famous line: "Nobody knows anything." That's Right. And uh, even though two films had been made from Lord of the Flies, but I was just like, oh, yeah, it's an interesting link how the book uh, of so these let me, kids... let me
0: get this right. Your dyslexia managed to get a different author. <laughs> well, no. I mean, I thought William Golding. Uh, but, of course, it's William Goldman. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, and, yeah. You know so yeah. Adventures
0: yes. in the screen trade. So and, that's right. And uh, what was the other one? Uh, you'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again? No, was it? no that, no, was, no, that Ju- was Julie uh, yes, right. Yeah, She was a, an executive we William Goldman also did
1: Marathon Man, All the President's Men, and um, Doodah. You know the Cowboys. The, um, you know where they jump down the. (laughs) Yes, that. What is that? The Uh, the Sting. Yeah.
0: Is it the Sting? No, 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 he didn't do the fucking Sting. No, no. No, What did he do? do? (laughs) Christ. (laughs) Uh, I was thinking of The Princess Bride but He did He wrote
1: The Princess Bride That's right Now people love that film I do I always always fall asleep in it I find it's a bit boring There's got to be other people uh, Out there that don't like it Come on The only thing That makes me laugh About Princess Bride Is that Andre the Giant Mm. Was reportedly To have done a fart On set And apparently It was ten minutes long It's been recorded And the director Whose name I've forgotten Said Are you alright Andre And he goes I am now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, laugh. Yeah. So anyway, um, that's completely lost my train of thought. Yeah, sorry about that. That's all right. Mm. Um, (laughs) William Goldman. William William Goldman. Uh, Yeah, so for my birthday, you very kindly. Yes. uh, Oh, we're going to be talking about this. We are.
1: Yeah, fucking.
0: Very kindly took me to see Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Mm. And while I admit that it did have problems, I did not hate it as much as you did. What's the matter with you? Well I'll
1: tell you what was the matter with me is I actually like watching a decently made well scripted film and the thing is I went in there wanting to like it wanting to enjoy it I do love Indiana Jones Raiders of course is a golden orb unto itself and I did work on the third one it was my first job as doing sculpting and actual proper special effects even working on that I could tell that it wasn't going to be what it should be Mm -hmm. and watching this film numerous things struck me the art artificiality of it the fact that the realist style that most indiana jones movies have been shot in right. uh, not including a crystal skull abomination gave it a sense of reality and gravitas you felt those fist punches those great fight with pat roach right. uh the german officer. which one he's in all of them right yeah. <laughs> he is he is so there's a reality there. This is totally unreal. When Doodal gets hit in the face, now they're on a train yeah. and the water pipe comes along, hits him in the face. Well, if you got hit in the face like that, there would be a wound. Sure, There would be something. The next time the Nazi chat pops up, nothing! It's like the fact that he pops up at all is like you'd be in hospital for a year with that. So that's that. Then the whole situation, is the way he magically seems to pop up wherever that dreadful scene where the kid, who is a very cheap, nasty version of short round, kind of a very strange guy. Not the gentleman himself but the part. And he wanders off and magically the guy, played by, what's his name? He's there! He's like, he's boat sunk. Right. He looks through binoculars going, ah yes, they are heading off to the beach. And the next thing you know, he's right there when a kid dreadful writing. Dreadful. They then go into the cave. There's no sense of any mystery. Then he's kind of chained to this big guy who calls himself the bear. Right, He's chained to him and then the next thing you know he managed to get the key. The whole thing is ludicrous. Also my biggest complaint is that in Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Ark is shown throughout the film to be this very powerful device. Sure. You've got the wonderful Ralph McQuarrie illustration when he shows him the Bible in the beginning right. and the music's like and he's like, you see that drawing, what it can do and they're like, what's this? Oh my god. Then you get the lovely lines. Why is it I can remember the lines from Raiders of the Lost art, and I can't remember any from this past film, you know, when he goes, it's a transmitter to God, you know, it's just such a great line, you don't have to believe in God and all that rubbish, but the thing is the line is great, it's powerful, then you've got that great shot, the camera tracking towards the rack, kind of quivers and falls over, I still don't know how they did that and then the Ark burns off the Nazi logo, you have none of that with this device when finally this device gets put together, it doesn't do anything, it's like a fucking compass, oh, there's a Portal and it's going to appear over there. It doesn't fucking do anything. It's at best a map like in The Time Bandits. And the map in the Time Bandits is shown to have more power and betterly, better doubt betterly, doesn't exist. <laughs> it, 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 do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. My frustration yeah. with you have three fucking screenwriters on this show. Spielberg apparently, respects to Steven, he's absolutely a main filmmaker. But nonetheless, Steven Spielberg saw this film apparently seven times, according to James Margold and it's like guys, what is going on? It was dreadful. End of. No. No. (laughs) I'm being controlled. Tight. Because it really annoys me. And on top of that, now you've got me going again, 300 fucking million without advertising. It's a disgrace. It just shows you more is less sometimes. Sorry James, I tell you what, your argument's flown along and I've just gone... (laughs)
0: That's fair enough. They're all valid points, and I don't argue with you on that. As far as entertainment value went, as far as I was concerned, I really enjoyed the ride. It was definitely better than Crystal Skull, but the effects were way better than Last Crusade because Last Crusade had some pretty dreadful BFX in it.
1: A dreadful blue screen and that bird stuff. Yeah. And what was going on there.
0: There's a whole litany of yeah. mistakes. But as far as story went, it was a way better filmed than Temple of Doom. Yeah, but, you know, it's interesting because... Um, and I like Temple of Doom. A lot of people hate it.
1: My favourite part of Temple of Doom is the coal mine chase. I love it. Yeah. It's beautifully done. And so there's a joy in seeing that. You know it's not real. Yeah. Most of the audience who looked at that when it was on the big screen knew you could see little indie, you know, yeah. little animation. But it was the idea
0: of it. So okay, with that in mind, yeah, with Style of Destiny, mm. we know it's not real. We Dial know he's of- not going through time. We know that they've completely CG'd his face and all that kind of stuff. It's just suspension. Of disbelief, you know, that's a good point. The
1: problem is because if you look at Temple of Doom, it was shot in a realist style. The realist
0: right. style means well, it's a different director,
1: though. Yeah, James Mangold, Steven Spielberg. No, but I'm talking about the style of filmmaking has changed sure. because now, due to visual effects mm. being the dictator, basically, you know, back then, ILM, if they did 300 shots, it was like fucking hell, right. 300 shots. Yeah. Now, you're looking at 3,000 shots, right. and the problem is, is there's an artifice around the whole production of what you see. One of the things I do like about, say, Mission Impossible is there is more of a sense of realist style. Right. It is still filtered. It still has the cool greys and the tobacco look and all that kind of thing when they go to Mexico, mm. which apparently Mexico looks like that. But there's a sense of more realism to it. However, with this film, is uh, you know, I didn't believe it. At least in the Minecraft sequence, you know there's a physical reality. It's a miniature, but there's a still a physical reality to it. And I think... You your mind does still read it. Now, that's not saying I'm not hating CG. There are some great films with CG and it works beautifully in tandem. For instance, with the Tom Cruise jobby Mission Impossible, they had a real train on a real track falling into the canyon. Yeah. But then they used CG to put the bridge in and stuff like that. There's right. a little bit of artifice there, but it
0: looks much more real. Right. On the flip side, we've got Mission Impossible coming out. Which I was just talking about, James. Yeah. yeah. Oh, was that what you were about, yeah. I thought we were still talking about. No, because there was a train crash and. Yes, they... but
1: in Mission Impossible, the train goes oh, off the viaduct.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, you see yeah. what happened there, folks. It was is what Martin I did was going on about stuff, and then I was still on India. He zoned Jones. out. Yeah, which is what you're a lot of doing. Yeah, yeah, I have to cut this. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. shall we? bring in our guest. Yes,
1: what I want to briefly say is we will be having our tucker today, and we got our tucker from the Robin Hood British Pub, Mm. which is in Van Nuys. It's on uh, Burbank Boulevard. The cross street being... Woodman. Thank you. And uh, we got our scones and fresh proper, not American rubbish, clotted cream, and uh, we spoke to a very nice lady there, Dana. And Dana actually said, if you're a British baker, you're in demand. They need somebody who does British baked goods. There's a demand for it. Anyway, and also she says there's going to be a shortage of bacon because female mother pigs keep rolling onto their babies because the way the farming's done now. So there you go. Well, that's
0: a terrible segue. (laughs) (laughs) And our guest... Uh, Right. Okay. Um, Now, look, James is your dear friend. Yeah. So, who is he? Okay. So, my buddy, James Bates, who came and ruined my life back in the days of Fox Kids, where he showed up from Disney and came into our department. And uh, we've been pals ever since.
1: Oh, I think our artiste has arrived. I see his red car. Let's bring him in. Yes.
0: All right. Here we have with us today. uh, (laughs) He's (laughs) He's not sure. He's cringing in the corner, I (laughs) assume Our good friend, James W. Bates, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hooray!
0: A warm welcome. Oh, thanks. A round of applause. Thanks for
1: having me. You're yeah, welcome. Yes. Well, as I say, and now you are more of James's friend than my friend, oh, see. which is—you're um,
0: besmirching you know, we- my
2: character already. How dare you? No. First of all, what do you do for a living, James? I am a screenwriter. Well, I'm a writer of many things, comic okay. books, screenwriting, both live action, but mainly animation. My claim to fame, or what most people will find if they Google me, yes, you'll find that I was the head writer for three and a half seasons for Power Rangers. Ooh. But mainly I write animation. Oh, okay. And I actually, I have notes. Uh, <laughs> oh, because, oh no! <laughs> well, I do babble. That's why it. James is very good at editing. Ask any writer to, hey, tell us about yourself. That's a huge mistake on your part. um, Well, I was hoping you were going
1: to dip your toe in and then we were going to move on. And we will.
2: We will. And you guys can pull me back. But before you saw I'm going to enjoy this pretzel because that's where you're from. Yes, I am from southern New Jersey. So there you were dreaming of Hollywood. Sure. You know. It's funny, as a kid, I was always in my own imagination. I'm six years younger than my middle brother and my other brother's eight years older. Mm. But what was wonderful about being the youngest brother is that I was exposed to a lot of stuff Mm. through them experiencing. So even at six, my musical taste was being formed by my older brothers, but also my imagination, that kind of thing. But as a kid, you know, there was times I was slightly sickly or whatever. So I had a zoo of stuffed animals that were my friends. And they weren't imaginary friends. I knew I was writing their stories. Mm. But then you start going to school and you have more and more friends. And looking back, I used to be the artist because my father was an artist. Oh, he was. My father could have been a professional artist. He was brilliant. And my mother doodled kind of cartoony stuff. So, I mean, art was always in Mm. my life. And so I had that going for me. And I had these older brothers who were also influenced by that. And they got me into playing Dungeons and Dragons. And you haven't stopped. The thing yeah. is, is that it was really geeky to do back then, but it gave me yet another outlet. Right. So I had a lot of creativity that I just tapped into and I could make people laugh. The guy who I usually would sit behind in class, he's the best audience. Right. Anything I do can make this guy laugh. So when we were 11, we were making cassette comedy tapes, like Saturday Night Live skits. Mm. It wasn't because I was dreaming of making movies Mm. or whatever. It was just something that was organic.
1: But it's amazing that you had that great thing you can get at school, which, as you say, you have that audience, and that protects you from bullying and things like that and makes you noticed. It's very powerful, right?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and here's to kind of wrap out the beginning of my inspiration. And this is the answer that I don't want to give when I'm up for a job interview because I feel like it makes me look silly because everybody does it and everyone says the same thing Spielberg okay when I was 11 12 I wanted to be an archaeologist and it's because of Raiders of the Lost Ark right but then the best a year later I believe it was on PBS it was like a 45 minute documentary the making of Mm. and what I remember from it is underneath the truck when he's Mm -hmm. got the rope he's Mm -hmm. underneath the truck Mm -hmm. and I realize Oh, no, that's what I want to do. You want to get dragged under a truck. <laughs> well, that's that, that, that's the reality of being a writer. Yeah, that's uh, working in Hollywood. <laughs> but, but I realized, oh, I mean, I love this movie. That's what I want to do. Yeah. And so when I found myself at 15 and 16 in New Jersey, that's when everyone gets their car. They get their license and their parents buy them a 20-year-old beater Right. and you get your freedom. Right. And I realized I would have to pay insurance. So I said to my parents, lend me the money, but not to buy me a car. They had these things. They were like the size of a suitcase, but you hold it on your shoulder and it was a camera. Oh, and you put yeah. a VHS tape in it. Yeah, yeah, And I could make movies. Yeah. Right. Now I didn't get one at first, but I did rent one and I made a horrible movie, but I had the bug then. And I realized that's what I wanted to yeah. do. So best thing I ever did was joined the drama club yeah not only because that's where i met my wife but oh
1: so that's where you met karen
2: yeah she was a year older than me mm. and we were doing a christmas carol i played two roles i played bob cratchit and jacob marley and when we had At the, the same time within 90 <laughs> seconds of each other mm. because if you know the play right in the beginning Scrooge is giving cratchit the business hold on if,
1: excuse me a minute there's two english gentlemen right. sitting here i think we are well aware right well of, but, uh, but, but for Shakespeare's the audience
2: christmas nights out shakespeare get out joke yeah. anyway but for the audience though if you think of that early scene where he's in the office can i put some more coal yeah. in and and then scrooge goes home that's right and as soon as he gets home after he tells some charity people to go f off that's right you know he, he goes home and marley's ghost is there that's right in our play that's 90 seconds so i had to be bob Cratchit, then run backstage have a wig put on me and then he put in deep blue lights yes and an actual tow truck chain oh Easy really? for me. oh my god <laughs> which which this really cute girl in the mm. back Stage with throw over my shoulder mm. quickly, and she hit me with the chain right. in dress rehearsals. But the thing is, it wasn't a stage chain, no, it was a real because one. we couldn't afford that. It mm. was, and she hit me in the head with it, but she's paying for it now, still 30, <laughs> uh, 37 years later. Like, Karen, what were you thinking? Isn't
1: that bizarre? She threw the chain, it became
2: literally the yeah. chain of marriage. But she, she, ha- she hates the <laughs> she, <laughs> she literally, absolutely, very good. No, literally, though. Um, I. I i met her at this charity car wash the reason i mentioned that and i never really met her before right and i had one conversation with her and on the ride home on the bus i told my friends i'm gonna marry that girl didn't happen right away Well, they didn't very sweet isn't it it's quite a lovely story so when i got to the time to start to go to college i had also been exploring doing fine arts anything is as a comic book writer All my things are storyboarded. In film school, I storyboarded my films. Mm. Now, not every filmmaker in college storyboards their films. Not only in college, I mean, in real life. But the thing is, I wasn't quite good enough. I kind of realized that I was good at certain things, other things I needed a lot of training for, but I wanted to make movies. I wanted to tell the stories. Right. And so I applied to the biggest film school, and it was my big dream. And my girlfriend at the time, it's all about me going to New York to go to NYU. Oh, okay. A school I could never have afforded. Why is that so? so well-known. That's where Scorsese went. Oh. People talk about the three to five best film schools. NYU's there. Okay, Absolutely are. Right. The thing is is that it's also very expensive and my dad was a grocer. My mom was a housemaker. Yeah. And so I would have needed a big scholarship and I applied to an art school called School of Visual Arts. Oh yes. And I almost got a full four-year scholarship there. Really? And that's a funny story because I went up to a scholarship competition and James will tell you <laughs> my big thing is long story short. Long story short went up 1,300 kids there that day. We all watched The Red Balloon you know the short film The Red Balloon yes yes the classic and we watch that we do an essay on that Mm. on the cuff didn't know going in Wow. And then we're supposed to talk about a filmmaker and why it works. And off top of your head, you have to write the essay. Just
1: literally, you'd not seen this film before.
2: Oh well, that was the Red Balloon. I yeah. did that essay, but then they had another essay which was just free form of oh. saying a filmmaker and why you like them and what's good about okay. them. Okay, sorry. Yeah. And I was ugh, Oliver Stone, mm. and I talked about the father dynamic and whatever bullshit I could come up with, right? But <laughs> I was one of of the thirteen hundred. They brought back a hundred of us wow. for a formal interview. Ooh. So I go there, and for college interviews I had a nice banker suit right I'm 17 I get there I'm the only one wearing a suit oh man everyone else was dressed like goth rocker yeah an artist they had the foppy hair with the you know oh yeah and the spiked hair tattoos yeah, all this yeah. kind of stuff yeah. and I'm there hi I want a job at your bank you know and <laughs> and so I go into it but here's where I really screwed it up oh is this is that a famous during the interview and I can't believe I'm telling this this thing. is great so of course I'm nervous I'm 17 and all this kind yeah. of stuff and it's a huge thing Yeah. So they ask, what's your favorite TV show? I couldn't think of anything. So, what did you come up with? There's a sitcom called Perfect Strangers. Oh, God. Which is not a good sitcom. No. But it made (laughs) it... That's what popped into your head for a full scholarship. (laughs) I can't honestly tell you whether I sat there for five seconds or five minutes before I came up with an answer. But it felt like... Forever. Forever. Yeah. (laughs) And in other interviews, I have blank this way when I'm saying, don't say, don't say, don't say. But this one, I'm just like, what's a TV show? Oh, you know? (laughs) And... <laughs> like, like I could have even said the Mary Tyler Moore show and right. talked about how it was groundbreaking. <laughs> I, I say sitcom. So I immediately see the guy, an older <laughs> distinguished. Yeah. I could see his face immediately go over. Yeah, I should have just, as James would say, get me coat, you know. <laughs> Joe Golden. I tried to talk about how Perfect Strangers as a buddy comedy and that <laughs> you
0: uh, tried to blag your way oh through the rest dear, of it. Dear. <laughs> oh.
2: So let's just say I did not go to that school. All right. I did not get the scholarship. So I ended up going to do what was my second real choice which was Ithaca College where I've made lifelong friends and what was wonderful about that school is you made movies as freshmen mm-hmm. NYU you probably would have had to wait till I was a junior mm. but you make movies right away mm. and I had a wonderful film school experience and in many ways at Ithaca I was one degree from greatness with many very successful people um, I was going to do that sorry James we're just no. no
1: we've got to have tea because we just had a scone and it's very it's stuck I'm in my it. teeth I'm spraying it everywhere
2: I'm going to have the Philadelphia scone which is a pretzel here Philadelphia. Would you
0: like a tea with Oh no. Well
2: I'm working on it. Oh
0: you want sweetener for that, don't you?
2: I'm okay. Sure. James, do you have oat milk? No, I've got real milk.
0: It's right there. Thank you very much. Yeah, no. I have to say, before you continue with oh, that story, no. I, the cream I, is dreadful. The what is?
1: The clotted cream is dreadful.
0: Yeah, uh, it was a bit cheesy. It's horrible. I don't know why that is. Right? Because they <laughs> can't
1: do bloody clotted cream in this country.
0: No, but that was from import from England, Wensleydale. It's been, it's been They're still bitter about us beating
2: them in 1776, so they complain about the food. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no,
1: I'm serious. Cream is very important. And they just can't get it right here, James. I don't know what it's like in Philadelphia. Do you have cream in Philadelphia? You can't get cheese. it right.
2: Philadelphia-style cream cheese. Well, off, off
1: oh, it. yeah, that's right. Yeah. But this is cheesy. It's it, terrible. It was, yeah, it bit... I'm, I don't want to slag off the place. No, no. It's not them. No, it's not. i just going to have to get back to Cornwall. That was a
2: bit no. Anyway. Maybe Uber Eats will be Anyway, you were
1: saying you got to make films as freshmen rather as, than
2: junior. As freshmen. Films. But I was actually kind of just saying that I have been one degree from uber success. Right. And the thing is, I got lucky to not get into some of those other schools. When
1: you say one degree of success, what do you mean by that?
2: Um, One of my oldest friends who I met freshman year, he's produced The Office. The the American version? Yeah, the American version. Let's get him on. Yes. Um, (laughs) Next. And uh, he's one of the top editors and he's a brilliant director too, but he's won multiple Emmys as an editor. The funny thing is, is that he is a genius when it comes to comedy. Was he always this genius, even at college? When it comes to comedy, I'm funnier than him. Mm. Yeah, Dave. No, but he's a genius editor and he's worked on a ton of great shows. I mean, one of his first jobs out here was Seinfeld. So, yeah, he's never worked on anything anyone's heard of. But Now, someone who I'm not in contact with, but who I lent that camcorder to, is a guy named David Boreanaz. Oh, him! He He was Angel, wasn't he? He was Angel, and Mm. he was Bones for 10 years, and he's a big mega TV star. Yeah, he give you a camera back. Yes, (laughs) Mm. and uh, there's a funny story that I didn't realize, that his father was the famous weatherman in Philadelphia. And so when he returned the camera to me, when I went down to his place, I'm like, why do you have a picture of the weatherman on your... It was really, I thought it was a joke. (laughs) I thought it was like, you know, it's like, hey, you got college dorm posters and pictures. Mm. Who knows what you put up? But the weatherman. (laughs) You know, a lot of my friends from there have been very successful. And I always feel like I'm two years behind. Mm. I was when I moved out here. Many of them moved out here right away after college or within a year. Mm. It took me like two and a half years. But after I graduated, well, we're talking about me at 18, 19.
1: But you'd come out here by 18. No, no, I
2: came out here when I was 24. Okay. And you drove all the way across on your own, right? Uh, No, I had a buddy do the drive with oh, okay. me but again grocers son mm. it wasn't like hey james here's 20 grand to go out to la with mm. it was like no go slice lunch meat so i spent two years slicing lunch meat at supermarkets and your fingers and my fingers which is, that actually <laughs> i was getting to that he, he gave away the punchline but i also <laughs> sorry in those 23 months i wrote at least 10 feature screenplays Right, 10 that's impressive isn't it because that was my outlet mm. what i discovered during film school I can fix your story. Mm-hmm. I can problem solve. I can map out your story. I can predict where you're going in act one and tell you whether you can do something different. I can. not Ask me to set up a light stand and call 911 because I'm a disaster. You like Oppenheimer then
1: because Oppenheimer oh, was well, terrible in the lab. That's why I became a theoretical uh, Physicist.
2: physician. See, I actually didn't know that. Physicist, but, uh, Physicist yes. As but, a, <laughs> yeah, but my career has become death. So
1: <laughs> well, no, 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 no. This is very interesting to touch. His but this is why we brought you on because you're in the trenches with us
2: yes I am on the wrong side of Hollywood even though you are above the line I am above the line and that's the other thing I've learned on set I also can fix problems I can organize I can help you with your shot list I can do all that kind of stuff I'm the guy you want holding the clipboard I'm not the guy you want holding the camera
1: what is ego isn't it on set that's a problem isn't it well no but I get not your ego no no no, but I'm saying
2: I can get stuff done so but film school I think was very very good for me because you do everything Hmm. you took courses where you had to do things and there were things i just couldn't do like set up a light stand set up a light stand is true but loading a camera mag oh yeah i wouldn't in a that. bag mm. oh. you, you put your hands in a bag oh, horrible. and you have to do it without yeah, seeing yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. now it's just a card but another one of my college friends was the guy who had to pass me on that test and let's just say he had to pass me on that test because oh. i couldn't have but you know what? By senior year, some people were coming to me and saying, Look at my script. Can, can you tell me if mm. this is any good? I also did a ton of acting in college because I'm hairy. I could grow a mustache at 15. I could grow a really good beard at so 20. So no the makeup
1: budget was uh, minimal. That's right. Yeah. So
2: everyone who had. We need a susquat, uh, quick. Everyone who had the movie where they blew up the professor or somebody went to a therapist or whatever. Bates, grow a beard. Right. And I acted in it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the thing is, is that there are some that I. I'm good in there's something I'm bad in like anything you know and there's some roles that just weren't right for me as I learned when I came out to LA is that unfortunately I'm just too ugly to be an actor oh stop it with the
1: disparaging remarks that's our job no
2: I know that's what you learn (laughs) oh I can be character well
1: even if you think of Guy when he was talking basically said the same thing there was a certain look here right and even if they wanted the character European they went back and raided the old Vic or whatever the
2: the RSC yeah Guy's got those dulcet tones those family Uh, genes the the, the voice the one that this guy over there has used uh full monica to (laughs) thinking he's sexy
1: you'd done your school you came to la because you are very well known for the power rangers and everything you You got a huge fan base for that so what kind of led into that (laughs) fan
2: base okay Well, I still, (laughs) I came out here to be John Carpenter, but I didn't quite know what I was going to do. But I did have those college friends who had already hit the beach and some of them were working not great jobs. Right. My first film job was again something i'm really not good at which is being a runner oh directions this yes. is pre-gps there's a thing called the thomas guide yes and it's a book where it has every neighborhood and it has maps but i have a horrible sense of direction this is the world's worst job for me but it's how you broke in you get like 50 dollars a day mm-hmm. to drive around mm-hmm. i don't know the city or whatever and the first day i had a job and there's some photographer that was a one-day job, and my brake line went. Holy so God. <laughs> there's a Colorado Boulevard in every neighborhood. So I look on the map, and mm. I'm like, oh, Colorado, here I am. I'm looking at a thing for Pasadena, but I'm down in Watts. Yeah. But that's the thing. By the end of the day, as the sun's going down, I start recognizing streets because I'm lost. I'm like, why do I know Normandy? Well, the LA riots were two years before. Mm. So here I am, my <laughs> yeah. first job, yeah. lost on my first day. My brake line, bleeding fluid, lost where the riots were. Were. Yeah. But then my second job shortly after, I wasn't even there very long, but was for Full Moon. Oh, Charles Band. Charles Band. Yes. And that
0: name comes up again.
2: Yeah. Oh, Charles Band, who engine. you find out when you drive around, owes everyone money. Yes. Um, So they're all, you're not at the top of their list to be nice to. Again, I don't know where the hell I'm going. And this is a strange place called the San Fernando Valley. Oh, that place. The yeah. guy, he had set up all these vendors like four or five months before. And he had them set up to go from Charles Band's studio Video, which hmm. was in venice wasn't it no it was up here oh. it was off for of the two in the san fernando valley Andres? doesn't matter gotcha. the thing, it was puppet master four i think right i didn't get to do much of the special effects stuff i was driving and buying paint right so that job lasted for a short while the other thing i started doing is reading scripts for a company called abnet kerner their most famous movie is called fried green tomatoes oh and, and well and
1: alison anders directed that didn't she
2: she may have they've made a bunch of movies and they've done a lot of tv lately right. i mean they actually ironically did mighty ducks which there's another part of my story that Goes to that. If this podcast is six hours long, maybe I'll get to it.
1: James is good at editing. Yeah. Snip so, snip.
2: But here's the thing I was reading scripts and doing coverage for free as part of the readers group. Hmm. I'm bringing this up for a point. Coverage is a mini book report so executives can look like they read the script when yeah. they haven't. Yeah. And if it's really good, I and mean, boy, you have to really believe in something being really good if you're going to say, I recommend this highly. Yeah. But then you do the little book report, which is about a page, sometimes a page and a half. And then at the bottom, then you write your opinion. The reason I bring this up is because I did that job on and off. And then I worked at bookstores to pay the bills, working five days a week, making $133. Wow. But I also then was like, oh, I need to put more time into my writing. So, I was kind of living on mac and cheese and it just hand to mouth, mate. And doing things with one of my buddies from the reading group. We were talk show audience members. Do you get paid for that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you get like three hour blocks instead of eight hour blocks, but going and sitting. So, my crotch was on Talk (laughs) Soup hundreds of times talk soup is a show that used to be here where they would do snippets from all the different talk shows so when you saw the host talking with the audience behind them i'm in the crowd behind them and so i'd be like hey there's my crotch (laughs) and uh but i was doing all that but then here's the thing that's happened in my career before i moved out here i went to the library and got the hollywood reporter this is in south jersey yeah and i answered an ad looking for somebody who'd write a kid's show so i sent my resume which had nothing on it and a tape. Of my two animated movies in college right but that got the eye of this producer who was looking to make the fuzzy buzzy bee floppy poppy flower show <laughs> that sounds like a ci5 code in yeah. Russian. <laughs> and <laughs> repeat this five times but here i am in jersey i don't even have a computer i have a word processor right. but i'm writing scripts and designing characters for that show hmm. now that really didn't go anywhere. But you got paid. I got paid a tiny little bit. guys. a paid writer in New Jersey right. from an ad in the Hollywood Reporter. Bizarre. So fast forward to my first year out here in the Hollywood Reporter. This is before the internet. Mm. I sold a feature screenplay. Mm. I don't know how many scripts they had. I think they told me once they had at least 400. And it was this teenage drama. And I sold a screenplay. That's great. So that's validation. The thing in Jersey, I think, was because I'd mm. done some animation. Mm. And that was not a necessarily a professional thing. But without an agent. This was all done without an agent. <laughs> Agents and everything. I had written over 120 episodes of television before I had an agent. Hmm. but So I sold the screenplay. I sold it till the end of the universe because I didn't know crap about contracts. Hmm. But hey, I it was on my way. So that's when I'm like, I need to stop living off of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Hmm. I need a job. I didn't want to be a runner. I know I'm not a good crew person per se. Hmm. But you know what? This is where I'm lame, but I'm also a genius. <laughs> <laughs> Legend in his own right. In the readers group at Abnett Kerner, scripts would come in and pile scripts. Oh, you want this one? You get this one. One of them had a cover letter with it. But the person who did the cover letter had done a mock-up of an article about the premiere of the movie from this script. Right. So I think I want a development job. I realized I should be reading scripts, giving notes, developing stories. So I get to Hollywood Creative Directory and I gather up my money from the bookstore and I'm sending out 200 resumes. But I had nothing on my resume other than reading for Avnet Kerner Right. I wasn't even going to put Full Moon on there because I worked for them for a week, right. you know. Doesn't matter. So I wrote coverage on a screenplay called The Hiring of James Bates. Oh, <laughs> that's great. That's genius. And the log line was, yeah. Jersey Kid comes to Hollywood, works at bookstore in blah, blah, blah. Mm. And then I wrote about my mission, my goal, and the stuff I babbled to you now. Maybe not the Perfect Strangers stuff, <laughs> but I wrote about all that. And then the recommendation part at the bottom is, hire him that's great mate boom i send it out now at that time i also was writing more features Mm. and i was chasing low budget horror because at that time as a nobody without an agent they were still making a lot of low budget horror movies or erotic thrillers right and i had an acquaintance who had a little bit of success doing that and i was like well this is how i'll maybe get in Mm. so i was writing scripts with limited budget stuff that would end up on cinemax or direct to vhs right right you know and my influences were like sam Raimi and john Mm -hmm. carpenter and stuff like that and i was going for that kind of thing and i was working as a assistant to the producer on friends low budget horror erotic crap fest that Troma eventually bought Mm. and i met the actor from my actual favorite tv show as a kid and his name is william Cat. he played the greatest american hero it was a very popular short-lived show but one of my favorite shows of all time and he was the director on this movie Mm. and he and i hit it off he read a script of mine called the werewolf in my pitbull which is a horror comedy the werewolf in your pitbull the werewolf in my pitbull it's um we don't have enough time to explain no. it, but it, it, it but it was swiftly on <laughs> imagine if the Farrelly brothers they wrote a horror movie right that's the best way I could pitch it right yeah. but he read that and he goes, oh god you're great I have a friend who needs a script written so I got five grand to wow. write The Revenge of the Swedish Bikini Team <laughs> <laughs> now remember I had already sold My the teenage like. drama right yeah and the Swedish Bikini Team was an ad campaign from a brewery a beer called Stroh's mm-hmm. and not stroke S-T-R-O-H-S right yeah. and And it was a very famous campaign here. Well, those performers and this producer, they were going to make a movie. Nice. And I got hired to write the movie. Wow. That version of the movie never did get made. Uh-huh. My rewrites were paid in booze. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so this is how I'm existing. Yeah. And then I come home from the set of this horrible low-budget movie. And on the answering machine is a call about coming in to interview. We're looking for an intern at Walt Disney TV Animation. Oh. My gimmick resume. Someone said, oh, this guy's clever. So they send me a packet with some artwork and say, come up with a three-page pitch for a series from this and then come in to interview. So I go in, I interview. Now, the way that company was structured at the time is they had three departments. They had directed video, they had current programming, and they had development. Hmm. I'm game for any of them. Hmm. But they need an intern to work for all three departments. Wow, okay. And so in development, self-explanatory, current programming is after development's created something, they hand it off to the actual production of the show hmm. and you give notes on all the scripts and the storyboards and the hmm. director cut edits and you go to the voice records, the actual making of the show. Right. And then direct the video would make a sequel to Aladdin hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Well, I did not get the internship. Ooh. But what I learned later is I came in second place. Oh. And so six months later, when the current programming department needed a new executive. They didn't want to hire the intern. Really? They called me. Ah. So I go in there and I'm immediately a note-giving executive. Really? You just went straight in there as an exec? Yeah. Uh, That's That's an incredible story. Six months after not getting it. Well, the thing is, is because they read my writing sample. Yeah, yeah. I could develop a show. Yeah. I must not have said Perfect Strangers in the interview. (laughs) Right. And I will say it was really fascinating because a lot of people talk about working for Disney. The second my foot hit the floor across the threshold, I had health insurance. Right. And I had a certain amount of pride of working for that company you know, in 1995. Yeah. I mean, this is Walt Disney animation. Yeah. And I'm still protective to this day. You must have been getting paid a bit better than
1: uh, $130 a week as well. Not much more. No.
2: Really? Even as a junior what? exec? What? No. Really? At that time, no. And the thing is, I don't think my boss and the two people that hired me... Uh-oh. My boss, Jay Fukudo, was one of the three, four nicest people in this business and Ooh. he had been executive on Family Guys and Happy Days and mm. all this kind of stuff. But he wow. was in his early 40s and he and I hit it off great. And then he had a whip-smart, brilliant young lady executive named Kim Christensen and they apparently... Liked me, Mm. you know, and so I started to get trained under that. Mm. There's stuff like in your first meeting where it was like the first thing that's important to us are our families Mm. and our lives. Mm. This is very different than most executives. Mm. But I had a great year learning. I shadowed Kim mainly. Right. Disney TV animation had two big giants in kids animation or three at that time, but Disney had these shows before I was there like Mm. DuckTales, Rescue Rangers, uh, Darkwing Duck, great shows. Mm. They also did Gummy Bears. Mm. So they had a kind of established kids TV animation in their own brand yeah and when i was there i worked on lion king's timon and pumba which was a brilliantly funny show with these guys who were very warner brothers spirit very very funny buddy show which was a little cheeky and that aired on cbs because this is before they own abc so i was shadowing learning on that show so i got to learn wacky and i've always loved warner brothers yeah tex a tex avery warner brothers i think so but looney tunes and all that kind of stuff yeah. that kind of stuff <laughs> But then I also worked on stuff that was Synergy, which was Mighty Ducks, the animated series. But I worked with a brilliant David Wise, no longer with us, who had been one of the brilliant animation writer workhorse. He did almost everything himself, almost to a fault. But he had been the guy who carried the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle series before he got to Disney. And there was also another show I was exec on, which was maybe the most prestigious show they did, which was called Gargoyles. Now, the creator of Gargoyles had left the company Hmm. and this was their Batman, the animated series. If you remember, Mm -hmm. Batman, the animated series changed everything because it was so high quality. It's almost for adults. Gargoyles was their show. So I was exec on that. And as an exec, you go, you sit behind the glass. The most beautiful people in the world bring you M&Ms and you sit there. Okay, James, um, (laughs) today we're recording Keith David, Ed Asner. Mm. So you give them notes. (laughs) Wow. I'm 25. You know what? When I looked at the storyboards and the cuts, the voice records on that show, I just stayed out of the way.
1: No, I was going to say, to have that power. I mean, I've never had that. I've always fancied a bit of it. I got close to it when you run a show doing makeup effects. But come on, that's got to be it. addictive i mean i'm really touching base instincts here but oh, that has well, to be
2: partially maybe because my salary was so bad and because i was the young guy <laughs> i just was learning and trying not to screw up yeah. for the most part now i've always been very confident when it comes to giving notes and writing and that kind of thing mm. so during my time there it was great for the first six to seven months and one night jay comes to me and he inferred hey you know what mighty ducks is going to be your show Suck it hell. so i was no longer gonna be shadowing but he was basically telling me that i was going to move from what was called Development Associate, which I was making a little bit better than bookstore money. I was going to get promoted. Mm. That was around 6.03. That night, went home happy, had a beer. So the next morning, I'm there at nine o'clock. James, going down to my office, I've been let go. What? Jay Fukudo has yeah. been let go. What? Jesus. Other VPs would come in and they were like, oh, I'm so sorry, Jay. Uh, and they were looking at his office. Right. Oh, they were dear. sizing up the curtains as the, th- oh, the phrase. Oh my God. So within a week, yeah. Kim I could tell she's the smartest one in the room, even though you don't think of it. it. Says they called me about renewing my contract, and they kind of missed the date. So she actually had an opportunity to go work somewhere else, mm. because as you inferred, exec shelf life is very short. Mm. Right. And if your boss gets fired, mm. someone else takes over, and unless you're immediately glommed onto as, oh, we want this guy, you're someone else's person. Yeah, right. yeah. So Kim, I think saw an opportunity. She went to go work for a guy named Haim Saban. Oh, <laughs> I've heard of him. <laughs> he <had> yeah. A- <laughs> yeah. You have too. (laughs) He had the biggest show in the world at the time. And it's funny, when we were at Disney and four million kids a week or even more than that were watching Mm. Power Rangers, um, we were like, we're Disney. We're 101 Dalmatians. We got the Jungle Book cartoon. We got this and that. (laughs) Joke's on me. But Kim had the offer to go elsewhere. Mm. So who's left? You. And the other guys who took over. So I know where the bodies are buried or whatever, and these guys are still my friends, Mm. but I wasn't their guy. So of course, they immediately promote me, but there were a whole bunch of new shows coming I think there were opportunities for me and the higher prestige ones Mm. weren't my assignments. And you know what? If I were in their shoes, I probably would have done the same thing. So at that point, you know, I'm still a writer. That's the thing. I was seen as an asset to that first team because of my writing Mm. and my story note giving. The new team, I still don't really know what they think of me other than they promoted me. It was a kind of uncomfortable year. They didn't fire you though. They didn't fire me, but they didn't renew me. Mm. And I was never told I wasn't going to get picked up until the day. So literally you were let go on the day. Well, you would think a month ahead. Oh, we're picking up the contract. Yeah, yeah.
0: So you're saying it came right down to the wire.
2: I had to go into my boss's office and go, so it's 6 p.m. on... On such and such date, and they say, "Yeah, we haven't picked you up."
0: You're under
1: contract, so that's it. It's like, "Tada!" I'll pack your bags. Wow. So let's apply the brakes to that one.
0: All right. Before we go, we bring you our
1: fact check. Fact
0: check. Fact check. Fact check segment. Here, with the benefit of hindsight and editing, we can own up to our mistakes. So, Martin, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was the name of the movie that you couldn't remember. Oh, okay. Thank you, James. Um, The Princess Bride was actually directed by Rob Reiner. Correct. Uh, The Doodah character that you keep referring to in the Indiana Jones segment was actually Mads Mikkelsen. Oh, I love
1: him. He's great, which is why, of course, I can't remember his name. Yeah,
0: well, there's that. Or oh, can I do the next one?
1: Yeah, because you'd like to have a go at me for that.
0: Yeah, so you incorrectly quoted, it's a transmitter to God. Yes. The quote is, it's a transmitter. It's the radio for speaking to God. Oh, yes, mm.
1: that's the one. But I still remembered it partly. Yes, you As did. opposed to nothing on these latest versions. <laughs> now, James Margold is, in fact,
0: James Margold. Man Gold. Yes. What a great name, Man Gold. Yes, so you corrected yourself. I did. Excellent. By the way, Martin, Fried Green Tomatoes was actually directed by John Avnet. And I think the clue is in the name of who Bates was working for, Avnet Kerner. I stand corrected.
1: Okay, uh, so Tex Avery worked at MGM, not Warner Brothers. That is correct.
0: So you don't know anything. I think you meant family ties, not family guys. Uh, So James,
1: I'll see you on the next one. And we're getting into Fox Kids and Power Rangers. And I'm really looking forward to that.
0: All right. That sounds good. See you next time. Cheers. Bye.